Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. This week, we talk with Dr. Megan O'Sullivan, the Jean Kirkpatrick Professor of the Practice of International Affairs at the Harvard Kennedy School and author of the recent book, Windfall, How the New Energy Abundance Upends Global Politics and Strengthens America's Power. I'll talk with Megan about the book, touching on topics including energy independence, the U.S.-China relationship, energy ties between Europe and Russia, and much more. Stay with us. Megan O'Sullivan, thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. Thanks, Daniel. It's my pleasure to be with you. So, Megan, we're going to talk about your recent book, Windfall, which largely deals with geopolitical issues related to increased energy production in the U.S. But before we get into details on the book, we'd like to ask all of our guests a brief background question on how they got interested in energy topics. And, you know, for you, you have a long and distinguished career as a scholar in government, uh, including time that you served in Iraq during uh, some of the most difficult periods during the insurgency. Uh, you studied geopolitical issues around the world. Um, so why did you want to write a book about energy now? Sure. It's interesting even that that's a question on people's minds, why a foreign policy person would write a book on energy. But you know, I have really, over the course of my career, had many instances where I've just seen these two things as inherently linked. And so I really wanted to write a book that made the case to people that if you wanted to understand the world today, you really needed to understand energy markets to understand foreign policy. And my interest in this intersection between energy and foreign policy really began actually in the 90s when I was um, a young scholar at the Brookings Institution and I was writing on economic sanctions as a tool of American foreign policy. And Mm -hmm. in the 90s, you know, we had sanctions on all or not all, but many of the big oil producers, Iran, Iraq, Libya. And so understanding how those sanctions were going to work, were going to achieve foreign policy success or, or not, I really had to understand energy markets. So that was sort of more from an academic perspective. But as you mentioned, I spent um, a lot of time in Iraq. I spent two years in Iraq after uh, Saddam was overthrown. And there, you know, I saw on a daily basis how energy was linked to foreign policy and international affairs. Uh, And then I I returned home and, and worked at the White House and continued to see that link. And it wasn't because I thought the war was about oil. But oil did influence, you know, Iraq's ability to achieve every single one of its goals. You know, it influenced right. its relationship with Saudi Arabia. It influenced its ability to deliver services and have the new governments be legitimate. Pipelines were a big zone of conflict. Revenue sharing uh, from oil proceeds was a big part of writing the Constitution. So all of these things really reinforce that view that energy and politics are inherently linked. And that is really the, the impetus for in- windfall. Yeah, that makes sense. And there are, you know, so many questions about that period that I am fascinated by. And I wish we had, you know, three hours to talk so I could ask you <laughs> questions about your time in Iraq. But another um, time, another time. Right. Um, so, so we're going to focus uh, instead on you know the more recent time period, and things certainly have changed quite a bit since the 1990s in the world of energy production as well as consumption. And in windfall. Tell me if you think I'm characterizing this correctly, but uh, one of the main theses or perhaps the main thesis in the book is that 
the increased oil and gas production that has occurred in the U.S. over the last 10-15 years means that the world has largely entered a period of energy abundance rather than scarcity. And you describe that as a strategic boon to the United States. So can you talk about uh, what you mean by that strategic boon? Kind of what are the some of the key points that it entails? Sure. And let me just make three points here. The first has to do with the you know, you're exactly right that I'm talking about a shift from perceived energy scarcity to now what I call a reality of um, energy abundance. And the three points I would make is first, when we, we think about oil, if we went back even 10 years and you we were talking about this link between oil and international affairs, there was a lot of concern about something called peak oil, the idea that the world would actually run out of oil before it found alternatives. And that shaped a lot of strategic decisions on the part of the United States, on the part of militaries, on the part of companies and others. So what I'm saying is that this really, this is no longer a major concern. The concern really has shifted to the fact that if the world does use all of its known oil and gas resources, we'll be in a whole world of hurt related to climate. Right. The second point I would make about energy abundance, in, in my book, I do really focus on oil and gas because the link with geopolitics is most obvious there. And that's largely because 81% of the world's energy consumption is still met by fossil fuels, and virtually all of the international trade in energy has to do with fossil fuels. So the link with geopolitics is, is strongest there. But I really think the shift to energy abundance is more than about oil and gas. It obviously has a lot to do with alternative sources of energies and growing viable renewable energy as well. So certainly um, the growing usage of renewables, particularly in the power sector, is part of this broad shift. And then the third point I'd make was just about you called strategic boom. And I do really make that dis distinction in the book that this is a strategic boom for the United States. And there I'm really trying to emphasize that it's not that America is just producing more oil and gas, which you know has a lot of benefits strategically in itself. America is less dependent on foreign sources of oil. That's obvious. But the case I'm making throughout the book, and I imagine we'll talk more about it, is that this also is strategic for the United States because it has changed the way that energy markets work, and it has changed the strategic environment in a way which is, on the whole, beneficial to U.S. strategic interests. So that it's not just about producing more oil and gas, it's about changing the strategic global landscape in a way which is, on the whole, beneficial to the U.S., Right. So it's not just about numbers and production and consumption, exactly. but it's about the sort of broader implications of those changes. So so let's get into some of those implications. One of the uh, chapters in your book, I believe it's chapter four, focuses on what you call a misguided pursuit of so-called energy independence. So I imagine listeners of this podcast will know that you know energy independence, this is a recurring motif in exactly. presidential campaigns. And um, today, the Trump administration you know, talks a lot about energy dominance. Um, why, in your mind, was it or is it misguided to pursue the idea of energy independence? And with this new rhetoric of energy dominance, is that any different from the old categorization or the old trope of energy independence? 
So in, in my book, I call energy independence America's unrequited love. So, you know, that thing that uh, politicians have always pined for, and really American consumers as well, but if we ever were to attain it, it probably would be a big disappointment. And the reason that I talk about it in this way is because I think most Americans think about energy independence as meaning that the United States would meet all its own energy needs completely. It basically would be an energy island. Right. And I think, you know, we could have an interesting debate, and I talk about this in the book, about whether or not that would be achievable. And my guess is it would be, particularly in this age of such a boom in oil and gas, um, but that it really would be not very efficient and probably quite expensive for the United States. We'd have to incentivize more production. We'd have to, you know, cut off pipelines from Mexico and Canada and divert energy to one part of the country from the other part of the country when it makes a lot more economic sense just to import from a closer a closer producer. It would probably require a lot of subsidies and, and, and things that would otherwise be costly for the United States. So I think that that kind of energy independence is really not a, a sensible pursuit for the U.S. And really, the kind of energy independence I like to think about is one that just leaves us independent from having energy dominate our foreign policy, you know, right. for energy circumscribing what we can do on the international stage. And you know, we want to be free from energy determining our relationships, be they in the Middle East or in Europe or with Russia or China. We want to have enough of our own energy security that we can pose our own foreign policy questions and relationships free from those types of responsibilities or constraints. So that's what I think about energy independence. You know, there are other forms of energy independence, such as North American energy independence. And actually, in 2018, the the continent reached or, or reached the ability for the U.S., Mexico, and Canada to meet all of its energy needs collectively as a continent, if it so chose. Right. That would be interesting, but the reality is having a, a free-functioning global market uh, for oil and for natural gas is really the best way to ensure energy security in this day and age. So even though that's an option, it's not necessarily one that makes the most sense for Canada, Mexico, or the United States to double down on. Right. And you know, recently there there were some data, preliminary data out of the U.S. Energy Information Administration that, uh, you know, for one week in uh, late exactly. November, the U.S. actually you know exported more crude oil and petroleum products than it imported, and so some saw this as the dawning of a new age of energy independence. When, you know, in reality, I think most people who study this issue see it the way you do that you know, the United States or North America or you know any nation, it's not desirable or practical to be an island uh, when it comes to the world of energy because of the interconnectedness of global oil markets in particular. Just on, on that point, because it really did get a lot of attention, America being a net energy exporter for a short amount of time, and I imagine that will happen again in the not too distant future. I think what people also tend to misunderstand is being a net exporter means that we are still importing 
from a lot of other places. And so we're connected to global markets. And as long as we're connected to global markets, what happens in other parts of the world really matters to us. And that's where I think a lot of people misunderstand the notion that you know we don't need to import oil from the Gulf, or certainly we wouldn't have to if we didn't want to, and therefore we shouldn't care that much about what happens in the Middle East. Why that's so misplaced? Because as long as we're connected to global markets, as we are today, even more so than ever, changes in Saudi Arabia or Iran or Iraq are going to affect global prices, and that will affect the price that American consumers pay at the pump. Yeah, absolutely. And so what about this question of energy dominance uh, and th this new term that's coming out of the Trump administration? Do you see that as any different than previous um, you know, strategic aims when it comes to energy, or is it just kind of a change in messaging? No, I, I think, um, I, you know, I... If given the choice between these two things, I would rather my leaders talk about energy independence than energy dominance, <laughs> right. just because I think energy dominance, although it, it hasn't been particularly well defined, but I think it has all the attributes of energy independence with kind of an overlay of, um, you know, using energy to a to, to make others do things they don't want to do. And I think that that is, you know, that's sometimes the case. I mean, that's actually what a lot of sanctions are about. It's when a consumer uses energy as a foreign policy tool. It's one of the ways in which consumers actually have foreign policy leverage. But I think energy dominance, you know, really highlights that in a way that is unfriendly to other countries unnecessarily. So I think there is a rhetorical difference, which is not probably particularly helpful. But at the heart of it, I think it really gets to, um, it's about developing, in, in this case, I think primarily America's fossil fuel capacity, which I think has some downsides on the environmental side, but also has a lot of strategic benefits. So I think it's a complicated cost-benefit analysis, and not all of the downsides or not all of the effects on in the environment are negative because, as you know, we've seen a big switching from coal to natural gas, which is positive for the environment. But I would say, you know, energy dominance um, is probably unnecessarily uh, an aggressive way of talking about American energy prowess, which in fact benefits many other countries around the world. Our European allies, our Asian allies, it creates opportunities for cooperation. A lot of positive things that I don't think are captured by the word dominance. Right. Yeah, it implies that there are sort of subservient partners out there rather than exactly. allies. Partners, um, exactly. Yeah. So you mentioned in your, your last answer, um, talking about, you know, the relationship between producers and consumers, and one really important relationship between a major producer and a major consumer that you spend a lot of time on in the book is that relationship between Europe and Russia, and the consumption of Russian natural gas that is so important for the European economy, or at least has been over the last several decades. Can you talk a little bit about how increased U.S. energy production has affected that relationship between Europe? and Russia in terms of energy and geopolitics and how that might affect uh, the United States' calculus with regard to intervening or not intervening in that relationship? Sure. Um, it's, a, it's a great question and a really important one because that relationship is one of the most obvious linkages between energy and international politics. And I would say that if we're really looking at how Russia's ability to use energy as a foreign policy tool has been affected by this energy boom, we need to separate out oil and gas. Perhaps we'll talk about oil a little bit later, but you, you focused uh, primarily on natural gas, and that makes sense because of the nature of natural gas. It has been the commodity that Russia 
um, has used most heavily in the European uh, realm as a foreign policy tool. And, right. you know, my argument here is that this boom really has affected uh, Russia's ability to use energy as a foreign policy tool in a couple of ways. I mean, on the one hand, we hear a lot in the United States about how natural gas exports, liquefied natural gas exports from the United States are going to allow the Europeans a certain degree of breathing room, or some people even think an ability to wean themselves off of Russian gas. On the other hand, we hear from Gazprom officials um, that last year, and maybe even this year when we get the numbers for the end of 2018, has been the year where Gazprom has sold the most gas to the European Union than it has ever done before. And so huh. we try to square those two things. And the reality is there's truth behind both of them, that Russia is, I would say, almost certainly going to remain a significant supplier of natural gas to Europe just because of the geography, because the infrastructure exists, because it's going to be cheaper just to pipe gas than it is to liquefy it, ship it, and regasify it. But Russia's selling that gas into a totally different market, a market whose workings have been transformed by the advent of American natural gas exports, along with other countries like Australia and Qatar. Mm -hmm. But Russia's selling natural gas into a European market where it's no longer really the only or the primary alternative for Europeans. In the past, you know, say 10 years ago, the Europeans didn't have a lot of viable alternatives or they were going to have to be bidding against the Asians who were paying a lot more for the same amount of natural gas. So in this environment where there's more natural gas on global markets, where the Europeans have taken a lot of steps to make their infrastructure more flexible, and where Europe is um, building more terminals to import liquefied natural gas, it just means that they have another option besides Russian gas. And this has created leverage for them. It has made Russia have to negotiate about price, about pipeline access, made Russia adhere to EC or European Commission rules and regulations. So it's a different environment for Russia, even though they're still selling gas. So I would say it's not as simple as displacing Russian gas, but it is very significant in curbing Russia's ability to use natural gas to advance its political agenda vis-a-vis -vis Europe as a whole. There's still parts of Europe where um, you know Russia really has a lot of leverage, like in Southeast Europe, um, Ukraine is still very heavily focused on um, what happens, but a lot of that has to do with transit rather than actually uh, consuming Russian gas directly from Russia, which Ukraine basically doesn't do any longer. Right. Yeah. So it doesn't completely flip the script on, on that relationship, but certainly does, um, you know, alter the calculus. Exactly. It's a good way of putting it. Let's look at another uh, really interesting strategic relationship that you spent some time on in the book, and that's the relationship between the United States and China. Um, you talk about something called the Thucydides trap in uh, in the book when it comes to the U.S. and China, and then talk a little bit about how the change in the global energy landscape may affect the likelihood of the Thucydides trap coming coming true. Um, so, can you explain what the Thucydides trap is and how it applies and how energy fits into the story when it comes to the United States and China? Sure. And uh, in referring to the Thucydides trap, I'm referring to the a recent book by one of my colleagues, Graham Allison. And basically, he talks about the Thucydides trap is simply um, when you have a rising power um, challenging a dominant power, 
that often this can lead to war. And he looks at, I think he looks at 16 historical cases where you have a rising power challenging a, a status quo power. And in 12 of the 16 cases, he finds it leads to war. And so this raises the obvious question about whether or not the rise of China will end up challenging the United States in a way that leads to conflict. And I would say there's a lot of debate about that, but it's certainly an interesting question and one that all of us should think about seriously, given the consequences of that scenario. Now, in the book, I talk about how I believe energy can be an area of cooperation in an otherwise very fraught relationship. And I would say that you know I wrote the book before the current uh, trade tensions between China and the United States, right. and you know I but it hasn't changed my view on this, or recent events haven't changed my views. I still believe that energy and the environment are two areas where the U.S. and China have common interests, and that in a relationship where uh, we can be certain there's going to be friction over the coming years and, and probably decades that we should really look to capitalize on and to nurture any points where we can have cooperation, which is not a Pollyannish view of the relationship. I, I'm pretty clear-eyed about all the challenges that China does pose to the United States and to the international system that has been so much in the U.S. interest and, and that of our allies and even others. But I do think that um, nurturing those common points of interest are important. And on the environment, we saw that clearly when you had the U.S.-China uh, climate agreement, which was the precursor to Paris. Right. The Sunny Lands Agreement, I think that it was called. Exactly. I still think that we share um, we share interests uh, with China on climate. I don't think those views are, are shared by the Trump administration, but I think uh, those common interests will be enduring and will will last beyond the Trump administration. But also in terms of uh, American energy exports, it happened very quickly, but up until these trade tariffs, China had emerged as one of the largest consumers of American liquefied natural gas and crude oil imports. And so that relationship was not one that was ever going to put China in a position of being beholden to American energy. You know, China's very focused, is very focused on diversifying its energy supply. But you did have a nice relationship developing there where you had a lot of American energy making its way to China. And so building yet another area where there was common interest. Now, those energy exports were really among the first to be subject to tariffs on the Chinese side in response to the American tariffs. So again, I think that the, there's a real question about to what extent those exports will continue. But again, I think these interests will outlast the current administrations. And there'll be ones where the US and China will continue to have interest in working together if the politics cooperate. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. So we've talked mostly about how increased energy abundance is likely to benefit the United States and its uh, geostrategic interests over time. Are there any geopolitical risks that might stem from increased U.S. energy production? And particularly, you mentioned climate change earlier and how you know natural gas has displaced coal in the United States, and that's reduced CO2 emissions, which is certainly true. But as we look out over the longer yeah. term, uh, as the U.S. continues to be a, a powerhouse when it comes to producing oil and gas, does that add any new risk to relationships? that the U.S. might have around the world. I do think it's important to underscore that while on the whole, 
the geopolitical benefits of this strategic boom have been positive for the U.S. There are some ways in which they're also negative. And let, let me just mention, too, and, and you, of course, mentioned the environment. And it's important to note that while there are some benefits to more natural gas for climate, um, there's also the very real challenge of greater consumption due to lower oil and natural gas prices. And certainly the world is experiencing that in the last couple of years. We've definitely seen demand for oil in particular go up, and that has led to an increase in carbon emissions. And we've, we've seen that in reports that have been recently released, that the world is actually, um, carbon emissions are growing. And a lot of that is due to the fact that the consumption of oil is growing at a greater pace. And of course, that has a lot to do with the, the price being cheap. So um, there's certainly some negative environmental consequences there. But I'd also say there there are some unexpected geopolitical consequences. And I, uh, for one, didn't anticipate this one, but it's pretty significant. And that is that, well... Russia's ability to project political power has been hampered on the natural gas side. It has been quite um, strategic in enhancing its geopolitical power due to the changes in the oil market. And so to make a long and complicated story short, essentially the boom in the U.S. for a lot of ways we could discuss has made it more difficult for OPEC to influence oil markets in the ways that it used to. Basically, you have a new business model that uh, shale oil or tight oil employs in the U.S., and it just makes it a lot harder for OPEC to have the impact that it used to have for the duration that it used to have on oil markets. And so surprisingly, or perhaps not so surprisingly, Russia has come in and has become a really critical ally to Saudi Arabia, to other Gulf countries and other producers in helping manage the oil market. So we saw just um, at the beginning of December, there was a new deal by OPEC, and basically that deal would have not occurred if it were not for Russian involvement for two reasons. One, OPEC in itself needs Russia and other non-OPEC producers if it's going to make cuts to production that are substantial enough to have an impact on global markets over a sustained period of time because of the growing dominance of the U.S. in these markets that didn't exist 10 years ago. And secondly, Russia has demonstrated that it's really the only player in the Middle East in particular that talks to all parties. So Russia got in there and brokered an agreement between Iran and Saudi Arabia. So this change in oil markets that has diminished OPEC has actually enhanced Russian geopolitical power in a way that I don't think any American strategist foresaw. Right. And that's fascinating. And right when people talk about OPEC plus these days, Russia is the main part of that plus. Right. Um, right. To be sure. Definitely. So there are so many other fascinating parts of, of the book, Windfall, that I, I would love for us to talk about, but we're running short of time. So I will just sure. recommend to listeners that they pick up a copy and you. you know, I think they're gonna they're gonna get a lot out of the book. But so just to, to close up, what are you working on now? What's what's interesting you these days and um, what's next on your sort of research or publication horizon? Sure. Well, I continue to be fascinated by this link between energy and international politics, but there are many different wrinkles of it. And the one that I'm spending more time on is looking at this broad energy transition. So the shift uh, away from fossil fuels to a more sustainable global energy mix. And the real question about to what extent uh, is that going to shape geopolitics? So we know that every time there's a big change in the energy mix, whether it's from wood to coal or coal 
coal to oil or now oil to something else, it brings with it um, a change in international political relationships. So trying to look at how this growing use of renewables and potentially over time, hopefully renewables being much more dominant in the global energy mix, what that will mean for international politics. And within that very large subsection or that very large research agenda, the part that I'm perhaps most interested in is what China's push to decarbonize its uh, economy will mean for the rest of the world. China is such a dominant actor in the global energy system. When it makes a big strategic shift, it's going to revert into the interests of many other countries. So trying to anticipate that a little bit more is certainly something that I'm spending some time thinking about and looking forward to writing on. Yeah, fantastic. Well, I can't wait to, to see what kind of insights you're able to draw out there. And I think there's there's a lot to think about and an yeah. enormous amount of questions uh, exactly. related to that topic. Hopefully some answers as well. Hopefully some answers. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure you'll give us some. So to close out today, uh, I want to ask you the same question that we ask all of our guests, which is what's at the top of your literal or metaphorical reading stack? So, you know, what have you read or watched or heard or just been thinking about lately that you think our listeners uh, might be interested in? Sure. I'm going to end on... um something that we just touched on very briefly, but I think is a really important geopolitical development, obviously as a big energy component, and that is the U.S. relationship with Saudi Arabia. So uh, just in terms of, there, there's a lot to read, a lot to watch about this, but you know, we see that Congress is moving in the direction of trying to curtail U.S. involvement or U.S. support for Saudi Arabia in the Yemen war. And there's so many interesting things to read. One that I just recently read is by Karen Elliott House. It's a long piece in the Wall Street Journal called Rethinking Saudi Arabia. And, you know, how this relates to the topic that we've been talking about um, is just this question of how important is oil in the bilateral relationship between Saudi Arabia and the United States. And obviously, there's lots of rethinking of this relationship because, uh, you know, prompted, not exclusively because of, but prompted by the murder of the journalist Jamal Khashoggi. And the real question about, you know, is the U.S., does the U.S. need Saudi Arabia in the way that it used to? And here, I think um, oil is not the only factor that we need to think about, but certainly it's a pretty significant one. Karen Elliott House, she actually makes the argument that we don't need Saudi Arabia as much on the oil front. You know, my view is that that relationship has changed a lot, but we probably still have a lot of oil interest when it comes to Saudi Arabia just because of the global market. But, But certainly, you know, we should have a little bit more leeway than we have in the past to raising issues of human rights and of accountability and, you know, having our foreign policy reflect those um, in ways that maybe we had less scope to do in a different energy age. So that's one thing that I'm thinking a lot about, and I'm sure your readers have touched on uh, from one angle or the other. Yeah, absolutely. It ties back into kind of how we started the discussion about energy independence and sort of what that means and what it means for U.S. relationships. Exactly. Fascinating. Well, Megan O'Sullivan, thank you so much for joining us today on uh, Resources Radio. Well, thank you, Dan. It's been a pleasure, and um, I look forward to listening to your other great podcasts. Oh, thanks a lot. Thank you so much for joining us on Resources Radio. We'd love to hear what you think, so please rate us on iTunes or leave us a review. It helps us spread the word. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C., 
Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. Learn more about us at rff.org. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the participants. They do not necessarily represent the views of Resources for the Future, which does not take institutional positions on public policies. Resources Radio is produced by Kate Peterson, with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.